After a brutal work week, a group of colleagues is sitting around a table inside a dark room in western Indiana. Topless women take turns around a pole on a tiny stage. Others mingle closer to the men. The men work for the United States Bureau of Prisons. Tonight, they're celebrating a major accomplishment, something no one in their line of work has pulled off in a generation. Killing three people on federal death row in a single week. And a warning, this story contains explicit language and descriptions of violence. The celebration doesn't last long. In the coming days, health officials will discover that one of the dancers tested positive for COVID-19 before a shift. A week later, one of the prison employees tests positive. A week after that, the club shuts down. Before long, health officials trace the prison worker cases back to the dancer. By the year's end, as a result of lapses like this one, the federal correctional complex in Terre Haute, Indiana, will become the epicenter of the coronavirus pandemic in the federal system. But tonight, nobody knows any of this, and the public won't hear about it for a long time. They'll hear the opposite again and again. In the weeks leading up to that night, U.S. justice officials were saying, often under oath, that every possible thing is being done to prevent the spread of COVID inside their facilities. They've been telling judges and journalists, even the families of crime victims, we have a plan. Everything is under control. It's safe here. But that wasn't true, and it wasn't the only risk they were taking. Live from NPR News, I'm... When the United States started executing people again. The United States government held its first execution in 17 years this morning at the federal penitentiary in Terre Haute, Indiana. All federal executions in this country are conducted at one place, the Federal Correctional Complex in Terre Haute, Indiana. But they've been extraordinarily rare. Until that summer, there hadn't been a single execution carried out by the U.S. government in 17 years. It just wasn't something America really did anymore. But when that changed in summer 2020, the U.S. Justice Department didn't just resume carrying out death sentences. It started executing people faster than any administration in modern history. For the second time in 48 hours... This afternoon, for the third time this week... For the third time this week, the federal government executed an inmate... During those first few days alone... A third inmate is scheduled to die Friday. Fourth one carried out by the federal government this year. The federal government would soon match the total number of executions in the previous two decades combined. And they were just getting started. Was the eighth federal... ...out its ninth federal... ...for the tenth federal execution this year. Within days, the number of executions exceeded combined totals since the 1960s. Authorities blew past claims of intellectual disability, mental incompetency, ineffective counsel, racist prosecutions, even innocence. And they set other records. The only Native American on federal death row. Another three, including the only woman black inmate last night. For the first time in the country's history, the United States government executed more people in a single year than in all 50 states combined. By the time it's over, more executions under a single presidential administration in a century. I'm George Hale, a public radio reporter based in Bloomington, Indiana. Testing one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And that's Adam Pinsker. So, George, is that recording or not yet? 
recording. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. Adam's a TV news reporter in Indianapolis. Call me naive. I didn't think it was going to happen. But he used to work with me, reporting and hosting newscasts for WFIU, the NPR member station covering federal death row. It just didn't seem possible at this point. Nevertheless, at 8.07 a.m. on July 14th, 2020, someone, the person's identity still isn't clear, pronounced a man named Daniel Lee dead more than four hours after a group of also still mostly unidentified people strapped his arms and legs to a thin table. Uh, it did not seem, it didn't seem real. They poked needles and IVs into his arms and hands and eventually injected him with two doses of a sedative that's usually used to treat seizures. Again, maybe it was like some sort of like denial that um, I was in. And the U.S. Prison Bureau selected Adam to watch. Not wanting to believe I was doing this, that I was covering this. From WFIU Public Radio in Indiana, this is Rush to Kill. Each week, we'll take listeners inside the secretive Midwest facility where America houses its least wanted citizens and where it gets rid of them. In this debut episode, how U.S. justice officials convinced top judges to sign off on a plan to kill 14 condemned Americans in the middle of a pandemic. A shaky legal theory that got the ball rolling, and how laws passed decades ago by people in power today made it all possible. And why it could happen again. Former United States Senator, former Vice President of the United States, candidate for President of the United States, Joe Biden. Joe Biden stepped up to a microphone in downtown Indianapolis. Hello, everybody. How are you? It's July 2019. It's good to see you all. He's an early frontrunner in the Democratic presidential primary. We have to defeat Donald Trump this time out. We have to. Thanks, in part at least, to support from African Americans. And then we have to work twice as hard to rip out the, the inequities that still exist for people of color, black people in this country, in housing, in health care, in criminal justice systems. Most of the audience are black attendees at the annual convention of the National Urban League, which advocates for African Americans. The speech is Biden's latest opportunity to reassure black voters He's still the Joe they know. The the racial disparities are so pervasive in our society. All he wants is to talk about the future. So there's an incredibly long list of policies I go through. But his opponents won't stop bringing up the past. That 1994 crime bill, um, it, it did contribute to mass incarceration in our country. Particularly one of Biden's signature achievements during his career in the U.S. Senate, the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act of 1994. It, it funded uh, the, the building of more prisons in the states. Often shortened to the 1994 crime bill, and recent political debates are simply the crime bill, Biden drafted the Senate version. When Donald Trump took office in 2017, federal death row held 60-plus people, 10 times more than the year before the crime bill passed, a direct result of the bill's vast expansion of the number of crimes and factors that could result in a federal death sentence. These days, many in Biden's party are skeptical of the death penalty. By the time the Democratic presidential primary started in 2019, many major candidates had come out against it. Senator Kamala Harris was at the Capitol yesterday. Senator Harris from California was among the first. California's current governor, Gavin Newsom, has this week, as I'm sure you know, announced a moratorium on the death penalty in California. Is there a federal equivalent that you would do? Federal executions, of course, are quite rare, but there's a a federal death penalty. I think that there should be. A moratorium, an end 
Yes, I do. I do believe that. No one would be executed. Correct. If you were president of the United States. Correct. For any crime. Correct. Not even, I don't know, Not in the United States, no. There's nothing that rises to that level. Not in the United States, no. The interview positioned her even further from Biden on what he once considered a key accomplishment. Here's Biden in 1992. We do everything but hang people for jaywalking in this bill. By 2019, it was becoming a target. In campaign stop after campaign stop at the start of the primary season, Biden fielded questions about the crime bill and mass incarceration. There's only one bill, only one provision in there that had to do with mandatory sentences that I opposed, but had a lot of other good things the bill, which I'll get to in a second. It went on like that all spring until this blow up. That in this campaign, we've also heard, and I'm going to now direct this at Vice President Biden. Um, I do not believe you are a racist. And I agree with you when you commit yourself to the importance of finding common ground. But I also believe, and it's personal, and I was actually very, it was hurtful to hear you talk about the reputations of two United States senators who built their reputations and career on the segregation of race in this country. And it was not only that, but you also worked with them to oppose busing. And, you know, there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools. And she was bused to school every day. And that little girl was me. Harris shot up to second place in polls right after the debate. Biden dropped 10 percent. Support among black voters also began to erode slightly. Ahead of the second debate, Biden's campaign unveiled a plan to roll back parts of his bill. I believe my criminal justice reform package is as strong or stronger than anyone else's. And abolish the federal death penalty. And we can get there together. These words appeared on his website, quote, Because we cannot ensure we get death penalty cases right every time, Biden will work to pass legislation to eliminate the federal death penalty and incentivize states to follow the federal government's example. A week to go until his rematch with Harris and Booker at the second debate, Biden's campaign scheduled stops with the NAACP. So you launched your new criminal justice plan. Yep. Can you explain your evolution since the 1994 crime bill? 1994 crime bill, we had a gigantic epidemic in America of violence, particularly in African-American communities. It was supported by the Black Caucus in the United States Senate, by and large. Some members, some members. Some majority supported it. The majority supported it, and black mayors supported it. But here's the deal. What happened is we lost the election two years later. We're unable to every major initiative needs to be reformed. And we have now a systemic problem and too many African Americans in jail right now. So I think we should shift the whole focus from what we're doing in terms of incarceration to rehabilitation. I got six seconds left. Just let me say, I love you. Look me over. I need your help. Thank you. As he spoke, news alerts flashed across the phones of audience members. Breaking. The U.S. Attorney General intends to restart federal executions. And Attorney General Bill Barr planned to carry out five in as many weeks, including people convicted under the law from which Biden was trying to distance himself the same day. It was July 25, 2019. Later that day, speaking to NBC News, a former Democratic lawmaker called the Trump Justice Department's timing perversely brilliant. Quote, It drives a deeper wedge between Biden and his opponents, and perhaps even more deviously, between Biden 1994 
60 new death penalties. That's what's in this bill. In Biden 2019, Barr had previously faced accusations he was using the Justice Department to help Trump. Weeks later, Barr's announcement preemptively addressed his critics. Quote, under administrations of both parties, the DOJ has sought the death penalty against the worst criminals. Indeed, it was a Democratic administration that prosecuted the first name on Barr's list, Daniel Lee. A federal jury in Arkansas convicted Lee in 1999 of murder and the aid of racketeering, one of the dozens of offenses Biden's bill created. Barr also said, quote, We owe it to the victims and their families to carry forward the sentence. Are you sure you won't have breakfast with us? Erlene Peterson insisted on meeting at this busy diner in Russellville, Arkansas. Uh, the prison contacted me, yes. So they were, they were setting the date. Of course, I'd been seeing it on TV, too. Daniel Lee was convicted of killing her daughter, granddaughter, and son-in-law in 1999. U.S. officials planned to offer seats at Lee's execution to relatives of the victims and pay for flights, hotels, and meals, even arrange for them to speak to the press. But if Erlene had her way back in 1999... None of this would be necessary. Every day I plotted and tried to get a gun to go to the courtroom and kill him. Anyway, Erlene and her family were living here in Russellville three years earlier. That's when her daughter Nancy, Nancy's husband Bill, and the couple's daughter Sarah all went missing. Do you have any idea who her daughter had no idea. I knew he was I knew he was acting very strange, my son-in-law. That was Bill Mueller, who was a weapons dealer. Erlene said he'd started associating with a group of white supremacists he'd met at gun shows. They included a man named Kirby Kehoe, who had been accused a year before that of robbing Mueller of guns and medals. There's, there's over $100,000 worth of guns and ammunition and gold and silver. Six months later, a woman fishing in Russellville caught on something heavy. She reeled it in and pulled up a shoe containing a human foot. Divers later pulled up three bodies. They needed me to come back to Arkansas and identify the clothing. And I said, okay, after I quit screaming and carrying on. After recovering weapons belonging to the Mueller's, investigators zeroed in not on Kirby, the one accused of the previous robbery, but his son Chevy. Facing possible charges themselves, Kirby's wife and another son, Shane Kehoe, told authorities that Chevy and his friend Daniel Lee had committed the murders. I only missed two days of the trial. Yeah, well, I had a a slight stroke. Stress. She remembers the moment they brought Lee into the courtroom and the impression he made. I said, yeah, he's a thug. (laughs) Lee looked the part of the dangerous white supremacist the U.S. government claimed to be prosecuting. Missing an eye, swastika tattoo on his neck, orange jumpsuit. I just told my kids, he needs to die. They need to die. And that was when it first happened. And I was in total shock, just identified my daughter and grandbaby, and there's nothing but bones. Then Lee's co-defendant walked in. He seemed different. In a suit and tie, and he looked like a nice young businessman, very polite, very kind. Erlene and others in her family are convinced that's why the jury decided to sentence Chevy to life in prison instead of death, his demeanor and appearance. Even though prosecutors described him as the ringleader and the actual killer of Erlene's granddaughter Nancy. Because he already he already admitted he done it when he said Chevy Kehoe. According to testimony from Chevy's relatives, he expected Lee to kill the girl. And he told Chevy, he said, I can't kill a child. And he said, Well, I can, and he did. That gave Erlene pause about Lee's possible death sentence, Chevy's alleged confession. 
Then, an unexpected encounter with Lee's mother sealed the deal. But she came to the bathroom that they let us use and was begging for his life. They, t- they made her leave the bathroom and told her she could not speak to me ever. But the damage was done. I just wanted to take her in my arms and tell her it's okay. Erlene explained that the death of her own child helped her to empathize with another mother trying to save her own son. That's why I had so much compassion for Daniel Lee's mother, is because I knew she was, she was feeling out her mother instincts. She loved her son, same as I would be. When it was time for Lee's sentencing, they noted Chevy's life sentence and asked if Erlene was comfortable with life for Lee, too. If they're going to give one life, they have to give both of them life. Other members of Erlene's family agreed, even if it was hard to stomach. I want justice in our justice system more than I want peace for one individual. Nancy's cousin Monica Vayette remembers when prosecutors approached the family. Did we want that taken off the table? And we said yes, it wasn't fair. Because he was not the person who came up with this. He was not the person who murdered my eight-year-old cousin. Chevy Kehoe was. And that person was given life. With their blessing, the prosecutor contacted Deputy Attorney General Eric Holder and asked for permission to drop the death penalty request. Holder's answer? No. Even though the judge, the prosecutor, the defense, the family, everybody was on the same page. With Holder's instructions, the prosecutor had no choice under the federal system but to ask the same jurors to sentence Lee to death. And they did. I couldn't believe the injustice in our government. That's what threw me for quite a while. After Barr wrote that the government, quote, owed the execution to the victims, Erlene tried to tell him that in this case, they didn't want someone new to die. I've sent letters. Never once answered me. Well, four prisoners in the federal prison in Terre Haute had been slated for execution starting early next month, but a ruling from a judge this week put a stay on those executions. Three months before the executions were to begin, a judge in Washington shut down the plan. Well, the legal reasons actually go back to as, far, as early as 1993 and 1994. Barr's plan relied on a generous interpretation of the Federal Death Penalty Act, the part of Biden's crime bill that expanded capital punishment. He also released an addendum to the existing federal execution protocol. That's the guidebook which guides executions. Protocols vary depending on jurisdiction, and they're usually detailed. That's because people facing execution have a right to challenge the way the government plans to kill them obviously in advance. Barr's addendum said the Bureau of Prisons obtained and planned to use an anti-seizure medication called pentobarbital. The Federal Death Penalty Act doesn't specify any one drug or even one procedure. Instead, it says the U.S. Marshal, quote, The U.S. Marshal, quote, shall supervise implementation of the sentence in the manner prescribed by the law of the state in which the sentence is imposed, end quote. And it sounds like a very dry, technical sentence. Reporter Jordan Rubin was covering the U.S. Supreme Court for Bloomberg Law when Barr's addendum came under challenge. Obviously, we're talking about executions, but what a lot of this challenge came down to is what does the manner mean? What does that word manner means? It was a federal jury in Arkansas that sentenced Lee to death. The federal protocol states the manner of execution should match the one at the state level how Arkansas would do it. So much actually came to ride on that because the government said that manner just involves the method of execution. Are you talking about lethal injection versus hanging versus electric chair? But the people facing execution said, hold on, every state uses lethal injection. That's a method of execution. Manner refers to how. 
refers to which drugs the state uses, when they're administered, who supervises everything. If the inmates were right, then the federal government was facing a really difficult situation because they wouldn't be able to use the protocol that they wanted to use. That anti-seizure drug, pentobarbital, it isn't even one of the three drugs Arkansas uses. The people facing execution turned to the U.S. District Court in D.C., where Judge Tanya Chutkin agreed the law didn't say Barr could make up his own plan. And she barred the government from killing anyone until this could be resolved. Then the government went to the D.C. Circuit. That's the federal appeals court one step below the U.S. Supreme Court. The government asked the D.C. Circuit to stay or vacate that injunction. D.C. Circuit said no. And something interesting happened then actually at the Supreme Court, and that's that the government actually lost. And the Supreme Court said, no, we're not going to lift that injunction. But they, in doing so, they said, we expect the D.C. Court of Appeals to quickly rule. Case number 19-5322. So the government went back to the appeals court and asked it to let the executions happen. Uh, thank you. May it please the court. The DOJ sends Melissa Patterson to argue that the attorney general's plan is legal. The Federal Death Penalty Act, the FDPA's manner requirement. And that the word manner means, in this context, method, lethal injection. We think that the term manner, um, while susceptible potentially to multiple meanings, needs to be interpreted in light of the long history of that term as used in federal death penalty statutes. I understand your argument that manner can mean method, but why, what's your authority for the proposition that manner can only mean method? I don't think we need to show that manner can only mean... Isn't that the key question in the case? No, Your Honor. In the Federal Death Penalty Act itself, why is it like that? Yeah. Yeah, so it's a good question. It's it's an interesting law. The idea is, behind the law, that, that it's good for there to be uniformity in terms of how this is carried out, in terms of being able to track the state procedures. The states have more experience in carrying out executions, is one thought. In 1994, when President Bill Clinton signed the crime bill into law, the federal government hadn't carried out an execution in decades, and federal death row didn't exist. Being able to track these state procedures, that'll let the government carry it out in a way that's tracking a known procedure. But Barr was trying to create his own procedure. The Attorney General's only obligation is to use lethal injection, right? He can fill in all the other details. That's right, Your Honor. Barr didn't intend to use any of those drugs. He planned to use a fourth drug, pentobarbital. Some states use it, but not Arkansas. Suppose, for example, could the attorney general pick a completely different chemical? But Barr is arguing that the DOJ has much broader authority. Could the attorney general use fentanyl, even though no state in the United States uses it? Absolutely, Your Honor, because the because manner yeah. is properly... You are consistent with your principles, I'll say that. Okay. This recording is condensed. The full version goes on for hours, with months of litigation before and after. And that's because everything is writing on this question, this word. What does manner mean in the context of the federal death penalty? If it means what this lawyer is arguing, Daniel Lee will die. And not only Daniel Lee. Because if they had won those claims up front, then none of this would have happened, or at least not in the way that it did. The question might as well be, does the U.S. government have the right to kill? It wasn't established that the government could create its own execution protocol. Even as recently as 2020, that wasn't clear. We should be allowed to choose, and there's no reason Congress would have wanted to forestall us. Maybe Congress should be making these decisions. 
life and death decisions? I think Congress could make those decisions. I asked you whether or not maybe they should be required. My only point about that, then, is maybe the Attorney General should go back to Congress and say, look, these are really fundamentally unknown questions that the, you know, politically accountable branches of government should make a decision about. Well, the executive branch is politically accountable, too, Your Honor. Their criminal list, a drug dealer gets a thing called the death penalty. Our criminal list, a drug dealer gets a thing called, how about a fine? In 2019, this was the head of the executive branch. And when I asked President Xi, I said, do you have a drug problem? No, no, no. I said, you have 1.4 billion people. What do you mean you have no drug problem? No, we don't have a drug problem. I said, why? Death penalty. We give death penalty to people that sell drugs. End of problem. When Donald Trump brings up the death penalty, it's usually in the abstract. People who kill cops should get the death penalty. They'd give me the death penalty if I said what she said about whatever. Why don't we execute drug dealers like they do over there? President Xi's agreed to put fentanyl on his list of deadly, deadly drugs. And it's a criminal penalty, and the penalty is death. So when he took office, those who watched the federal death penalty closely weren't entirely sure what to expect. Were we concerned about it at that time? Yeah, we were concerned about it. Were we surprised at the number and the ferocity of it? <laughs> yeah. Foster is the chief federal defender in Indianapolis. We were really hoping at that time that the Trump administration would not go there, um, that they had plenty enough on their hands. They also know the federal death penalty is riddled with problems. The Obama administration couldn't figure out how to carry out even one. The administration eventually gave up after a severely botched execution in Oklahoma. People seem to have this view that the, that the federal death penalty system is somehow the gold standard. Uh, that's just ridiculous. One thing Foster emphasizes is that the problems in the federal system are as bad as state systems and sometimes worse. And the problems with race and the problems with, um, you know, the disparities in sentencing, the problems with the geographic disparities in sentencing, and, and the level of incompetence of trial lawyers in the federal court system is every bit as bad as it is in the state court system. Federal death penalty cases out of Texas, it's the same lawyers that they're appointing in the state court cases. Do you think because it's in, the, in federal court that they're performing any better? I mean, come on, give me a break. The chairs are nicer in federal court. That's about it. She's convinced the DOJ took all of this into consideration when deciding who to kill. That initial list that they came forward with was so curated, so, so curated. They went after uh, white people who killed kids, even though white people who kill kids were not, you know, the majority of people on death row. They were not um, the people who had been on death row the longest. Um, they cynically selected those people to avoid discussion of what is really going on in the federal death penalty. And, and what is really going on is uh, racially disparate prosecutions, geographically disparate prosecutions. Whether you get the death penalty in the federal system is completely dependent on your race and the race of the people that you are alleged to have killed and the geographic district in which you commit those crimes. There's no doubt about that. Um, 
But that list did not, certainly did not reflect that. In one deposition, a senior DOJ official says U.S. prison officials selected 14 people on death row whose appeals they considered to be exhausted. From those 14, the first five were chosen because their victims were among, quote, the most vulnerable in our society. When asked to identify the official or officials who selected the first five, he responded, quote, ultimately, the attorney general. He also said the government did not consult victims or take their views into consideration. Our community here was aware of what was going on outside of our field of vision. This is Ray John Taylor, who was sentenced in 2003 under the federal death penalty for his involvement in killing a man in Georgia. We heard like the rumors that contractors or whoever were doing like refurbishment to the death house. Ray John is trusted by prison staff to have some responsibilities. He's an orderly, a prison job that includes moving between cells. That puts him in contact with most of the men on death row as well as their guards. He says the prison bureau started making preparations for executions to resume well before Barr's announcement. One night, working late, Rajon saw an officer bring an unusual chair into the facility. He brought the chair up here, and I can remember him talking to staff about the purpose of it, how they would go about doing it, and things like that. So I saw the chair when it first came up here. It had like scraps where it's like a chair that you would sit in. It had like an arm rest, two arm rests, but it had scraps. It had scraps around where your wrist would be. If I'm not mistaken, it even had a scrap like where your neck would be at to make sure you're secure in it around your ankles. Could you just give me your first and last name and then just your who, who you're representing here today? Certainly, it's Ruth Friedman. Um, I represent Daniel Lee, who is the first of the men the government has selected for execution in July. It's June 2020. That's my colleague Adam, who is covering the death penalty debate. The oral arguments over manner and method took place in January. That April, the judges issued their opinions. Three different opinions. They couldn't agree to one. Even so, that split was enough to reverse the district court's injunction, which had been preventing the executions from taking place. Next, attorneys for Lee and the others facing execution turned to the U.S. Supreme Court, asking it to clarify the D.C. Appeals Court's split decision. When you're informed about this on Monday, I imagine you're taken off guard, right? Then, in the middle of all this, Bill Barr set five new execution dates. Yes, um, we're in the middle of litigating issues that have been going on um, since last fall. Um, We're asking the Supreme Court to review a case on the uh, interpretation of the statute that uh, the lethal injection statute and the execution protocol that the government just unveiled uh, last summer at the same time that it said execution dates. We're in the middle of that. The government knows we're in the middle of that um, to set dates. And while that's going on is um, it's a bit surprising and a bit unfair. And this is a federalist country with power, especially over criminal justice matters, mostly in the states. Um, the government then released a protocol and regulations that ignore the states completely. Um, the DC Circuit, where this case has been, um, denied our challenge after the district court granted it, agreeing that the government was ignoring what the statute said. But the DC Circuit did it in a very confused manner with three different opinions that didn't agree. Um, so it's very right for the Supreme Court to decide. 
the, uh, the government even said to the DC circuit, you, you don't all need to look at this case because we all know it's going to the Supreme Court. So of course, when we bring it to the Supreme Court, they say, you don't need to look at this. And while they're doing that, they set execution dates. Um, so essentially, the Supreme Court could agree to review for the first time ever, the um, federal government's execution protocol. But while it was reviewing it, the government would like to still kill these men. Um, Mr. Lee is set first um, on July 13th. That gives us from the moment they announced it at five o'clock on Monday evening, you know, 20, less than 28 days. That's the shortest notice anyone's ever been given in the federal system. Is there anything else that you want to say before we, we finish up here? Um, I would ask the government to take a closer look at why they are rushing to execute Mr. Lee when nobody this, that this execution is supposed to be for want it, primarily the victims. Who is this for? Uh, Heather Good, H-E-A-T-H-E-R-G-O-O-D. I'm our assignments manager and co-anchor of News 10 this morning. Um, I would say the majority of my contact with the prison up until then was um, in doing stories with the um, union out there um, through like government shutdowns. Unlike for journalists in states where executions happen regularly, there's not really a death penalty beat in Terre Haute, or really even in Indiana. So newsrooms had to find someone to send to the executions, and it wasn't an easy ask. I think that they had kind of gone to some of the anchors as well and asked if they wanted to do that, and I don't think they, obviously they, they declined. Call me naive, I didn't think it was going to happen because it had been litigated for a year since they decided to redo the protocol, they put my credential request in. Adam was at dinner with his girlfriend when the prison responded. And like, I got the email on my phone and I looked at her, I'm like, they approved me to go. And she was like, oh God, you know, but I knew there'd be other legal challenges. Neither reporter thought they were actually signing up to watch someone die. The courts hadn't allowed the federal government to execute a single person on death row in almost two decades. Barr's plan to execute three people in a week seemed far-fetched. The first federal execution in 17 years was set for 4 p.m. on Tuesday, July 14th, 2020. Was very nervous, <laughs> for yeah. sure. And no one knew each other. No one was really talking. No one's done this before. It's been 17 years since this has happened. I would like to welcome you to the Federal Correctional Complex in Terre Haute. We're here today because... And the then the lead public affairs officer makes the statement that... Uh, uh, we are here because the courts ordered us to carry out the execution of Daniel Lee. And by the way, there's no Wi-Fi. Uh, she didn't say that, but I added that in there. So You got there, the phones, everything, all your stuff got put away. Nobody had access to any information. Before prison staff confiscated phones and computers, the journalists knew several stays were in place ahead of the scheduled execution, including one concerning physical effects of pentobarbital we realized we were going to be here a while. The government appealed. A couple more hours goes by. and I Started getting late. So we're, we're, we're now there is 8, 9 o'clock at night, um, 10 o'clock at night. We hadn't moved. In Washington, reporters at the Supreme Court started to wonder if anything was even coming. And it's a question of are they just not going to say anything because heading into midnight, it actually was looking 
favorably for Lee. So he had three appeals that were that were pending. And I personally had never seen a case that had three stays. Um, I'm not even sure there was a case that had three stays. Finally, the clock struck midnight. Before I went home, I called Monica Foster. And I said, hey, death warrants expire at midnight. She's like, yeah, normally. Executions require advance notice to the condemned person and their attorneys. That's absolutely right. That once midnight came and went and there was still a stay in place, that they couldn't reschedule it. And that would be true in every state. Meaning Danny Lee would live until the new date was set, at least. So I get in the car and I go to 57 miles back here. The WFIU newsroom is in Bloomington on the campus of Indiana University. I'm sitting at that computer over there. I have a word doc pulled up. The execution of Daniel Lee did not go forward Monday night. And I get a phone number, uh, a caller ID from like, Illinois. Get a text, get a phone call. 2.18 in the morning. Um, please make your way back to the media center. Somehow the execution of Daniel Lee was back on. So I drop, I literally, you know, didn't even close the computer. I grabbed my stuff, got in that vehicle, and I'm sure if any law enforcement officer heard this, is not going to be happy. I mean, I hauled ass. Like, well, I better get over there, and it's going to take me a while. This has never happened before. We don't know what's going on. Can they even legally do this after midnight? Like, there were so many questions. In every state court in this, or in every state in this country that has the death penalty, that would have been enough to require a new execution date, and it would have put off all proceedings for that evening. The federal system, though, they decided that they could come in and reissue a new execution warrant and give two hours or three hours notice. I never would have gone to bed if I thought there was still a chance he was going to be executed. Daniel Lee's attorneys called Monica Foster. They were out of town. Uh, Monica, are you awake? No. Uh, they just, I was on the phone with Danny Lee and the Bureau of Prisons just took him away and they said they're going to execute him tonight. I'm sorry, what? Can you give me a chance to wake up here, please? We had no idea what was going to happen. I mean, why would we think that this would happen at four in the morning? So my understanding, I got a call in the middle of the night. The lawyers were on the phone with him when the Bureau of Prisons came and got him off the phone and told him that a new date was, a new time was being set. The lawyers didn't get notice of it. He didn't, I mean, in the state courts, that would never, ever happen. It was appalling that it happened. It was shocking. Not the gold standard. There, the vans were ready. They were literally waiting for me. I parked the van. We drove onto the grounds, and we get to the um, maximum security side of the prison. We go through the two metal detectors, and they pat us down, whatever they do to us there. And then we drove to the execution chamber when we drove past to see these armed guards. They were all around the execution chamber. Media witnesses were the last people to enter the death house at 420. Once the reporters were inside, prison guards shut the door and locked it from the outside. And we sat there for what seemed like an, an eternity. We're all taking our notes, talking about the green trim of the windows, the color of the carpet, what seat we were sitting in, the CDC COVID-19 posters on the wall, the hand sanitizer. And we proceed to sit there for the four hours looking at these two windows that had, you know, the, the curtain down, knowing that soon those were going to rise and we would see this execution take place. Sitting here having this conversation with you, I don't know if you feel this way, but I feel the jitters again. Like, I, it makes me 
that adrenaline is there. I'm back in that moment of waiting and not knowing what's going on and not having any power over any of it either. The journalists knew the first stay had been lifted, but once they surrendered their phones and computer, they had no direct access to information. Just waiting and listening. Like we had not been in the media part of the death house for that long. And I remember hearing a laugh from the other side of the window. And it was kind of like a deep chuckle almost. And it was unnerving. And I remember stealing just a couple side glances from a, a few other people in the room of like, almost like, did you hear that too? According to Heather's notes, which are thorough, several hours into their isolation, someone remembered a detail from the execution protocol. Daniel Lee had been right there, right next to the reporters, tied to a table, the whole time. And, you know, we're trying to figure out what to do. Well, it turns out they put him on the gurney. This is in the middle of the night. This is like maybe four o'clock in the morning. They kept this man on the gurney from four o'clock in the morning until eight o'clock in the morning while they tried to get the stay lifted. I don't know what kind of sick people are running the federal government here, but that is, uh, that's, as, that's as bad and worse than any conduct I've ever seen from any of my clients. It, the fact that the government did that in our names is, not, is very disturbing and nothing short of sickening. Eventually, the reporters started asking questions. One of the Prison Bureau Public Information Officers tried to find out what was happening. It was sudden. There was no warning. There was no, no. It wasn't like, it wasn't like she got a text and said, okay, it's going to start in five minutes. Stand by, you know. The blinds went up, and there he was. In Washington, Jordan Rubin, the Bloomberg Law reporter, finally got an alert on his phone around 2.30 a.m. The Supreme Court opinion on the lethal injection challenge was in. The government won, five to four. The majority opinion was unsigned, but came with two signed dissents. Justice Sonia Sotomayor was particularly critical of what she viewed as an unnecessary rush to kill the people on death row before courts had a chance to resolve important legal questions. She criticized the majority for letting, quote, the government's artificial claim of urgency to truncate ordinary procedures of judicial review. And it goes on. The blinds went up. And the first thing I thought of was like, this is not the same man in the, in the file photo from 1998 or 97, whenever he was arrested. So we're all kind of timidly, respectfully coming closer to the windows. And he said, he was like, you know, I know you all in the media, you know, I want you to write this down. She says, yet because of the court's rush to dispose of this litigation in an emergency posture, there will be no meaningful judicial review of the grave, fact-heavy challenges respondents bring to the way in which the government plans to execute them. This is the only way this survives, is what I can get in my notes. And there's no do-over. So much was going on, even though so little was going on. There's this sort of meta aspect to all of this while the justices are disagreeing with what's happening in these particular cases they're almost narrating this issue in the background of saying i'm telling you this is not going to be good and he said i bear no responsibility i didn't do it um, and he said you're killing an innocent man they're killing an innocent man i was halfway across the country when this happened you all need to look into this and then the person reading the death warrant looked at the deputy marshal and said, 
Uh, are there any impediments? And he picks up the phone that never dials and then says, this is the marshal in the execution chamber. Are there any impediments? There's a pause. Attorney General Bill Barr gave the go-ahead. Hangs up the phone and says, there are no impediments. So then the mics go dead. A 16-hour wait from the time that it was supposed to happen. So then it was just done. Adam and Heather returned to that room the next day and the day after that. I would like to welcome you to the Federal Correctional Complex in Terre Haute, Indiana. And for the next six months, as the government moved faster They're and killing faster, him, and they want to, to watch him kill him. Journalists traveled to Terre Haute, Indiana. We have a watchdog role to play, a responsibility to be there, and that's a lot to ask of someone. To witness and record execution after execution. For those of you that were here yesterday, it's a lot the same, but it's a little bit different. Uh, good afternoon. Again. And I hate the smell of that room. I, I don't know what it is. It triggers something. Again. They wanted to kill people, and they didn't care how many other people died in the process. And again. We're better than this. I pledge allegiance to no flag that kills its citizens. And again. Rush to Kill is a production of WFIU Public Radio in Indiana. This episode was produced by Sarah Whitmire and me. Kathy Knapp is our newsroom researcher. Editing by Perry Metz. More information about the project is on our website, wfiu.org slash rush to kill.